This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. I want to do something a little different today. I want to start this episode with a personal note. From the earliest days of my career, I've done a considerable amount of work with clients in Canada, mostly in Toronto. It's a wonderful city, and I'm always happy when work calls me back. Over the years, I've made some great friends in Toronto who have taught me a lot about Canadian securities regulation and enforcement, and a little about the Leafs and the path and the best airport to access downtown Toronto. More on that later. I've always been fascinated by some of the differences between Canada's securities regulatory framework and the framework we have here in the U.S., from who makes the regulations to who enforces them and what they say. There are some important and interesting distinctions between the U.S. and Canadian systems. And because there is so much cross-border work, so many public companies that do business in both jurisdictions, some of those distinctions really matter. So, we thought a comparative Canadian-U.S. securities regulation and enforcement episode would be helpful. We're joined by some excellent guests and friends to help us with the comparison on this episode of Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, where we keep it fresh, but stay wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's very good to be with you, Chris. I'm glad that you're finally going with the fresh and wonky tagline. I've been pushing it for, for months now. It's going to take uh, off. I can feel it. <laughs> All right. We've got a good one. As I mentioned up top, we're going to spend some time today comparing the Canadian and U.S. securities regulatory and enforcement environments. We'll talk about Canada's provincial securities regulators, along with some regulatory hot topics, at least from a comparative law perspective, including anti-money laundering, anti-corruption laws, insider trading, whistleblowing, and some emerging securities reg issues that are getting different treatment north of the border. We're lucky to have two fantastic guests with us today, Larry Ritchie of Osler, Hoskin & Harcourt and Stephanie Greenwald of RSM. Let's do some quick intros. Larry, I'm going to start with you because you're an old friend. And in fact, I'm used to bumping into you in person this time of year at one of the securities or white collar conferences in the States. As I mentioned, you are a partner at Osler in Toronto, where you chair the firm's cross-disciplinary risk management and crisis response national practice. Larry's practice encompasses all aspects of enforcement and other regulatory proceedings and related litigation. He also advises on the conduct and response to internal and regulatory investigations. In those roles, Larry is continually recognized as one of the leading securities litigators and white-collar defense practitioners in Canada. Larry previously served a seven-year term as vice chair of the Ontario Security Commission. At the OSC, Larry was a member of the commission, its board of directors, and the executive management and adjudicative committees. Also while at the OSC, Larry was seconded to the Canadian Securities Transition Office as its executive vice president and senior policy advisor. In that role, Larry helped establish the Canadian Securities Transition Office, the federal statutory organization charged with leading the transition to a single national securities regulator. Larry now serves on the Financial Services Regulatory Authority, the FSRA, Board of Directors. Larry, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Stephanie Greenwald is a partner in RSM Canada's litigation and valuation services team, where she focuses on financial investigations and disputes alongside yours truly. 
Over her 19-year career, Stephanie's practice has focused on forensic accounting, internal investigations, and litigation support, as well as deep experience in the insurance claim process related to business interruption, calculation of damages and personal injury cases, and a variety of other insurance-related matters. Stephanie is a certified fraud examiner, and she's been qualified as an expert witness in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice in forensic accounting and loss quantification matters. Stephanie's work has been published by the Ontario Trial Lawyers Association and the Consumer Attorneys of California. She has specialized in the consideration of economic factors and legal treatment of women and minors in damages cases, recently presenting on, quote, building the economic loss claim for women. Stephanie has migrated north throughout her career, a native of South Florida that completed her college years at Yeshiva University in New York City before getting a master's degree in forensic accounting at the University of Toronto. She also utilizes her financial and organizational skills as the treasurer of the board of directors of the Associated Hebrew Schools in Toronto and balancing the ever-changing hockey schedules of her kids. Stephanie, welcome to Insecurities. Thank you for having me. We want to start the episode by talking a little bit about Canada's provincial securities regulatory environment. And, you know, as you may have picked up by now, Chris, I've, I've been thinking about this stuff for, for years, both because That's I right. find it intellectually stimulating, but also because I've, I've had to deal with it in representing clients. I've been going to conferences in Canada that, that address some of these issues. And I remember going to an ABA Institute on US Canadian Securities Litigation conference a few years ago where Judge Jed Rakoff was speaking about the difference between insider trading laws in the US and Canada. And I think uh, that's actually where I first met Larry, although I'm, I'm not sure if that's right. That's the first time I, I have you stuck in my mind, Larry, anyway. We probably were saddled up at a bar somewhere on one of our um, retreats as well. <laughs> exactly right. That leads to the to the hazy memory. <laughs> All right. So, so Larry, as I mentioned, um, in the past, you worked with an organization that was tasked with trying to uh, to create a single national securities regulator in Canada. It, however, it's my understanding that Canadian securities regulation is still largely a creature of provincial law that is overseen by provincial securities regulatory agencies. So I, I wonder if we can just at a high level, if you could tell us a little bit about Canada's provincial securities regulatory landscape and where things stand with the creation of a national securities regulatory agency. Well, thanks, Kurt. Bringing up my failure in getting a national securities regulator inside a <laughs> We always start with a softball. That was... <laughs> you started with the Leafs, so I understand exactly where this is going. But uh, <laughs> look, I mean, we, we, like the United States, are a creature of, um, we're a constitutional federation, and we have division of powers, and our country is a, a little bit younger than than your country, but, you know, when the country was designed in 1867 with respect to its constitutional makeup, property and civil rights it are the areas that are uh, within provincial jurisdiction, and that's where securities uh, has historically fallen within. And so this is a constitutional issue. Uh, that provincial that that securities regulation is a provincial jurisdiction, largely not exclusively, but largely, and really the most recent 
uh, incarnation, there's been lots of opportunities or attempts to create a national framework, a national uh, or pan-Canadian securities regulatory framework uh, in Canada over the years. But the most recent approach happened after the meltdown where it was recognized that a national approach to securities regulation would have been very helpful in addressing some of the the needs for reform in both the financial sector broadly and also in terms of accommodating international reforms uh, across the world. So the federal government took the initiative to create a a program, a a national approach to securities regulation by establishing the Canadian Securities Transition Office. While I was at the OSC, as you said, Kurt, I was seconded over as a representative of the province of Ontario to help uh, lead the transition to a national uh, regime. We were pretty far uh, advanced in terms of transition planning and uh, working with the federal government and and provincial parties who wanted to join us in that initiative in developing a a national uh, federal um, securities act. And that act was challenged by Quebec and and, and Alberta in the courts and ultimately uh, went to the Supreme Court, and at the end of the day, um, the the court found that all our work, our year and a half, two years of work, was unconstitutional. Once we got out of our fetal positions from the corner and and uh, pulled ourselves up and and looked at the decision, what they were saying was uh, that uh, certain aspects of securities regulation, the traditional side, was in fact within the exclusive jurisdiction of the provinces, but there were still some elements of modern day securities regulation that was within federal jurisdiction. That was um, the criminal law side of things, systemic risk, financial stability type of issues, data collection on a national basis that's important to uh, developing empirical basis for securities regulation. Those are federal issues. And so basically what the court did do was say that it's uh, incumbent upon the parties, the provinces and the federal government, uh, if they want to have a comprehensive securities capital markets approach to regulation, that the parties, the federal government and the, and the provinces could come together and share their, their uh, jurisdictions and create a cooperative securities regulatory model. And that's what has happened since then, at least in terms of the attempts. There are some provinces and the federal government uh, who, who have come together to, to try to develop a cooperative approach. And uh, that has been in the works for a while. But in the meantime, we're still um, in a situation where provinces are uh, responsible for securities regulation. And until the cooperative model gets approved by the uh, the provinces and the federal government who want to participate in it. That's the framework that we're working in. As you can appreciate, not unlike the United States, where you have uh, uh, the federal government and the states having to work together, finding a common path is uh, is is not necessarily an easy route to take. There's lots of division and and um, disagreement. 
And so that's the, the needle that has to be thread to be able to come up with this collaborative, cooperative regime. Larry, as you describe that, it, it sounds so simple, right? Just have all the provinces agree. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And things will go smoothly. But uh, my guess is that's not often the case in practice. And there's actually uh, significant inconsistencies between uh, the way you know provinces regulate and enforce uh, some of these securities issues. And, and Kurt, you'll remember a few episodes ago, we actually had uh, Vince Martinez on from the Na- North American Securities Administrators Association, <laughs> who we spent a few minutes just kind of on, on the nuances of, of the differences in the provincial law, yeah. as well as, you know, the state blue sky laws we have here in the U.S. But Larry, if you could just talk to us a little bit about some of the characteristics of those different securities regulatory agencies by province uh, and where there are those kind of sticking points or differences in some of the major topics we'll discuss today. The significant number of the larger provinces have their securities regulatory regime headed uh, or or overseen by a commission, uh, not unlike the the SEC. Um, It's an arm's length body. It's appointed and accountable to the governments in each of the provinces but they are accountable to each of those provinces and there are each separate securities laws and because there's separate governments that set the priorities um, there are obviously different priorities across the country some provincial regulators regulate also as a division of government so of course that that also heightens the political aspects of things so you know at any given time uh, with 10 provinces and, and, and three territories, you have different priorities and different approaches to securities regulation. The securities regulators do uh, try to find common ground on a consensus basis through an organization called the Canadian Securities Administrators. Uh, but as I say, it is on a consensus basis. They do come together to um, to create national instruments, which are basically rules and protocols that are adapted and adopted by each each province and become law in each of those province. And then there's a consistency across across the country. But again, it is it's purely on on a consensus basis. I should also say that there is a a regime called the passport regime that is meant to basically have a mutual recognition protocol for the approval of of prospectuses or um, offering memorandums, documents, uh, registration requirements, licensing requirements, so, so that the approval of one jurisdiction is accepted automatically across the country. Um, the exception to that, though, is that Ontario, the largest province for capital market regulation uh, in the country, is not a member of Passport. And that's because years ago, the government of Ontario said that they would enter into Passport if it was not an end of itself, but a stepping stone towards the creation of a national regulator. Mm-hmm. The other provinces said no. And so Ontario said, okay, we won't join. Uh, The other provinces, though, decided to have a a one-way passport that they would accept or recognize the decisions of Ontario in the areas the passport is covered. But uh, even still, Ontario will will not agree automatically to accept the other decisions of, of the other jurisdictions. So if in a lot of ways, if you want a national 
offering or a national license, unless you go first to Ontario, you have to go to another province as well as Ontario. It's a complicated country, our Canada. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's interesting. And, and that helps to get a sense of how, you know, the the rules of the road may be different from province to province and how you have to really think carefully about if you're a company doing business in Canada or, or in Canada and the U.S., as we'll, as we'll learn, that you really need to think about uh, which rules apply or maybe where you want to set up your business. One of the areas that is highlighted by what you just said is enforcement. Enforcement is very much an island into itself in within each province. And it is possible if you have, if you are a foreign jurisdiction and you, uh, a foreign business, and you do and you do business in a number of Canadian provincial jurisdictions, and something goes wrong, you could find yourself in a situation where you are subject to multiple investigations and multiple um, outcomes in the uh, in the enforcement space. So it, it is it is very challenging. Well, that, I have to tell you, that doesn't necessarily offend my U.S. sensibilities as we all of course. <laughs> live in a world of piling on, right? It could be the states and the SEC and DOJ and, and who knows who else is going to mix up in the alphabet soup. But Larry, you are, you're, you're sort of uh, guessing the direction we're going to go in next because I think Chris is going to talk a little bit about enforcement in Canada and, and what that sort of feels like compared to the U.S. Yeah, and, and I'm doing my best as, as a native Western New Yorker to save all of my uh, easy jokes about the U.S. and Canada for much later in the episode. So <laughs> apologies if those come out early about politeness and being courteous and, and this kind of uh, what we've termed in our discussions American bravado that we see in the enforcement of securities laws. But, you know, Stephanie, we talk a lot about kind of the different posture that, that both kind of countries take between the U.S. and Canada. So, Stephanie, share with us some of your observations about how the OSC and, and other provincial regulators approach uh, their enforcement mandate uh, related to what we do here in the States with the SEC. Well, before we even uh, go into the real uh, the real differences, as you just highlighted uh, so perfectly, the, the terms aggression and bravado, those really speak for themselves when you're talking <laughs> about why, the, uh, the, why you would have differences between uh, U.S. and Canada. One, one country is certainly more aggressive by nature than the other. But as a fundamental basis, I think we need to acknowledge that you know, the SEC has far greater resources, um, greater economies of scale, and overall just much more experience in bringing insider trading actions. So you're not really starting, you know, at the same base. The discrepancy in resources really means that the SEC is far more likely to pursue a lead. And when they do pursue, they're going to pursue, you know, with guns blazing um, or with that, with that aggression that we just spoke about. The U.S. Is, is far more aggressive, both in terms of prosecuting and in terms of the quantum of fines. Um, the fines that are, you know, administered for in insider trading by the SEC are you know, sometimes I think between 15 and 20 times higher per an insider trading case than they are here, which is not really surprising um, given that the, the dollar amounts of insider trading scandals in the U.S. are, are significantly more than, than they are here. Um, and then, I mean, in terms of jail time, that's an even bigger uh, discrepancy. White-collar criminals in Canada, by and large, do not go to jail. 
it was only uh, relatively recently in 2009, maybe, that the the biggest insider trading scandal in Canada was, you know, was uncovered and and was brought to justice. I guess you could say there were there were two friends, Kornblum and Gramovsek, who who made over ten million dollars in this scandal. So that's that's really peanuts compared to the insider trading scandals that go on in in the U.S. Um, and this was also this was Canada's first uh, criminal conviction for insider trading. And I, I think uh, Larry can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that Gromovsk is the only person to have ever served time for insider trading in Canada. Under the criminal code, the federal and, criminal code. Exactly. And I think he was actually caught by U.S. regulators. So going back to the uh, aggressive attempts at, at pursuing these leads. And as Larry mentioned you know, just before, Canada doesn't have a national securities regulator. We're actually one of, one of uh, only a couple countries that don't. And having the, you know, the local regulatory enforcement really means that the pool of people that are involved in any given um, investigation is, is relatively small. So, you know, if you look at Ontario, for example, you'll have, you know, the OSC, which is basically being captured by the local finance industry and the, the local legal establishment. So there's a lot of familiarity you know, between all the parties involved. And, and that's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something off there, but it's something that certainly should be um, noted. You know, in the U.S., if you have a, a Justice Department lawyer sitting in, in D.C. who's working a, a case against, you know, some fraudster down in Miami, you know, chances are you have no idea. One has no idea who the other is and has, you know, no personal feelings about whether or not he ends up in jail. So, you know, going back to the impact of not having a national securities regulator, that certainly um, adds to the discrepancy in, in, you know, the level of aggression and the level of enforcement, I think. Yeah. And Stephanie, I think it's interesting, too, you brought up the level of resources in Canada. Kirk, that's something we hear from the SEC and the DOJ a lot in terms of, you know, when they get questioned about why aren't we doing more, uh, they always say, hey, we have limited resources. So that's kind of a drumbeat of regulators across the globe, it sounds like, Mm -hmm. more so than just uh, an out for the U.S.-based concern. Yeah, I think that's right. It it continues to to come up even today. You know, we saw... In a hearing uh, in the Senate Banking Committee earlier this week, some tough questions about why no one went to jail after the financial crisis 12 years ago. Um, So it's something we obviously continue to, uh, to think about and talk about. Yeah. Larry, what are your thoughts on, on the American bravado, if we want to term it that, yeah. in, in our discussion today? Do you see similar uh, insights to what Stephanie just shared? I absolutely do. And it, it is a cultural issue. I mean, white collar crime in Canada is not something that Canadians, uh, politicians have have tended to, to pour resources in. And, and part of it is, is I think, what, what Stephanie said, the provincial side of things and the accountability. It's so costly because the lack of a central approach and accountability model for enforcement, particularly in the white collar space, cr- creates a situation where expertise is so diffused that it's challenging to establish sustained expertise not just at the prosecution and the investigation stage, but in the in the courts, and that's and that's a big problem. Also, you know, I mentioned before the the, the cultural aspect. You know, when we're watching the 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 hearings and um, the newscasts of, you know, prosecutors and politicians who really try to make political points by demonstrating that they are. 
uh, willing to go after white collar criminals. They have their prosecution records, etc. In Canada, it's just not a political issue and um, just doesn't really grab the attention of the public. Although, you know, in terms of the impact that it has on the credibility of the capital markets, on the safety of investors, of course, those same considerations apply on both sides of the border. So it's it really is an interesting dynamic. All right. So we've talked a little bit about the provincial uh, regulatory model, at least as it relates to securities regulation. And, you know, we've had some helpful uh, thoughts on the enforcement philosophy in, in Canada or in the provinces and how that maybe looks and feels a little bit different than what we're accustomed to here in the United States. We want to pivot and talk about some specific areas of law where there may be marked differences between either the Canadian federal or provincial approaches and what we do here in the States. So we're going to home in on AML and bribery, uh, starting with AML. Uh, Stephanie, when we had our pre-call, you had this great line that I actually jotted down. You said, uh, quote, the reason there's so much money laundering here is because there's no one stopping it, which is uh, really interesting. So talk to us a little bit, Stephanie, about AML regulation and enforcement in Canada and how does it compare to the U.S.? Well, it's funny, at the very core, I'll pick up on where Larry literally just left off by saying it all boils down to culture and, you know, what the politicians are using and or are interested in. And politically, white collar crime just really has not been a big ticket item here. I think that that's, that is all starting to change. And, and we can talk about why that that's starting to change. I, I think the government is now being forced to to stop turning a blind eye and to begin reform. And in part, I think that's because of the reputational damage that Canada has been suffering and is continuing to suffer. You know, around the world, Canada is is known to be a haven for white collar crime. You know, over and over again, there are comments that come out of different countries and different watchdog groups. The international anti-corruption watchdogs have been condemning Canada for years when discussions on major global money laundering problems come up. Just, just recently, I saw a report that, that came out of the UK that highlighted not only the longstanding history that Canada has in the development of tax havens, um, which is an entire topic in and of itself, but also that Canada is known as a destination for money laundering due to the weak rules over corporate transparency and, and ownership. Canada really, the, the weak you know, anti-money laundering laws have allowed criminals to hide in plain sight and if they're caught, they're likely not even to be prosecuted. What what I know you guys will will appreciate uh, down there south of the border is a new term that um, has been used to describe the laundering that's been going on here. It's called snow washing. I don't know if you've heard that, but it's, it's been coined to describe how easy it is to wash clean dirty money. And and obviously the uh, the comparison is you're washing it clean like the snow. Um, and so that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, you make it sound so tropical down here, quote, south of the border. Um, yeah. <laughs> the wind chill was in the 20s this morning, Stephanie, but uh, snow washing is definitely new for me. <laughs> south of the border as a native Floridian to me, means sun. <laughs> this, this snow washing has been a term that's been thrown around in recent years, uh, particularly when it comes to discussing the money laundering that's been going on in the real estate market. So, you know, anecdotally, the evidence of, of this money laundering has been obvious for years. Um, like I said, most notably in the real estate market and also in, in casinos. 
condo buildings in, in major Canadian cities that are built or, or bought are done so by shell companies. And just to contrast that to, to what goes on in the U.S., uh, foreign buyers in the U.S. are denied mortgages and they're you know much more heavily scrutinized um, when they're trying to buy in hot markets like New York and Miami. Um, condo builders have to disclose their buyers to officials, I believe. So there, there is, you know, a real difference. You know, like I said earlier, the, the other big area of money laundering that's been kind of highlighted in recent years is, is the use of casinos. Criminals um, bring in their cash to buy chips, they cash their winnings, they get their money back in the form of casino checks, and off they go. And this, this activity was happening in uh, British Columbia casinos for years and years and years without any effective you know, criminal, legal, or, you know, regulatory response. I don't think there, there were any criminal charges or, or tax prosecutions at all. And while you have here uh, FinTrack, which is the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Center of Canada. Um, so you have FinTrack here getting this information. They, they are tasked with um, assisting in, in the detection and the prevention and deterrence of, of money laundering. But there was not a lot of transparency until recently. You know, FinTrack would would, you know, get the leads and you know would have the information, but nobody else knew about it. It wasn't it wasn't publicized, and somehow everything just got swept under the carpet. But like I said, change is happening. Most recently, FinTrack has been um, ordered to publish all notices of violation um, at the time that that they occur. So. Now there will be some more transparency, and this is one of, of a few steps in the right direction to tighten up the way we, we deal with money laundering here. One element we want to jump to from a securities enforcement perspective today with both of you is foreign bribery. Uh, you know, Kurt, we've done a couple of episodes talking about FCPA here in the States in the past, but, uh, you know, Canadian law has its own uh, act related to this called the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act, or CFPOA, which makes it an offense to directly or indirectly give, offer, or agree to give or offer any form of advantage or benefit to a foreign public official to obtain an advantage in the course of business, or it also makes it an offense to engage in certain accounting practices where those practices are employed for the purpose of bribing a foreign public official or concealing a bribe. Now, those two elements there sound dramatically similar to the books and records and bribery provisions of the FCPA, but I'll have you know I did our, I did my research. When I say it makes it an offense, offense here is actually spelled O-F-F-E-N-C-E, <laughs> not with an S. So now we know that it's actually from, from Canada. So, uh, Larry, we'd love to hear about, although it sounds pretty similar to the FCPA, how do you see the CFPOA in its enforcement and, and review uh, in Canada different from how the FCPA is enacted? Well, once again, it's a it's an excellent question, and it's a it really does highlight some of the things that we've been talking about. I, the on in law, the the legislation is uh, is quite similar. The again going back to the division of powers, our foreign corruption legislation is a federal piece of legislation. It's it's part of our criminal law. It's enforced by largely the police and the RCMP, which are is our federal, which are our Mounties, our federal uh, police agency. In the States, your foreign corruption laws 
fall within the jurisdiction of both, I think, the Department of Justice as well as securities regulators. The SEC has powers to investigate and and, uh, and prosecute it. And a lot of, as you suggested in your question, a lot of the activity that you see has a close connection to capital markets activity and, 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 and wrongdoing. However, because there is not a national or federal securities uh, regulatory presence, you don't have that kind of collaboration in Canada. The provincial regulators do not get involved in investigating directly corrupt practices that are prohibited under the federal legislation. So again, you know, the theme is lack of, lack of economies of scale, lack of coordination, lack of collaboration uh, makes it quite difficult because of the lack of partnership that you have uh, in a purely criminal matter as opposed to the, um, the more administrative matters that are within the provincial jurisdictions. And because of that, the lack of, of uh, political priority in this area, you have not seen the type of uh, investigations and high profile matters that you have in, in the United States. This notwithstanding that in Canada, our economy, which is you know resource-based, mining, a lot of activities in other countries would lend itself to at least the same level of scrutiny that you would proportionately see in the United States. But the enforcement uh, activity is not proportionate. You know, we've talked about uh, anti-money laundering and anti-corruption, which uh, certainly impact the capital markets if we don't think of them as squarely within the bounds of securities regulation. But there are a few securities regulation topics that we want to hit on that I think we'll all agree are, are sort of right within the bounds of securities reg. The first one we want to talk about is insider trading. And I think perhaps the biggest difference between uh, the way the provinces approach insider trading and the way that we think about it here in the U.S. is that um, there is in Canada a statute that says thou shalt not trade on on inside information, right? It sort of lays out the elements of what an insider trading violation would look like. Um, we don't have that in the U.S., despite the efforts of uh, Judge Rakoff and Preet Bharara and others. Larry, tell us a little bit about how you approach insider trading in Canada. Well, it, you know, it's, as you said, because we have a statute, the elements seem to be, you know, pretty consistent and, and a little bit easier to frame than in the in the states. And I know that there has been a lot of discussion about whether there should be a statute to, to crystallize the thinking in the states. In Canada, it's it's largely premised on the concept of material information and um, having access to non-public material information which is is meant also you know to to fortify the idea that information proactively that is material which is defined as information that would be reasonably expected to impact the value of the shares or the the amount of of trading activity getting that information out into the market the front end is the disclosure when to disclose the back end is if you don't disclose that information, if an issuer doesn't disclose it or if somebody has that information and trades within the possession of that information, then technically that person prima facie is, uh, is insider trading. 
And it's also extended. We have a concept of a special relationship who has the responsibility of safeguarding that information and not passing it on. Mm. And that is defined as insiders and and people who would you'd reasonably expect to be insiders. But it also includes people who have received that information to bees from, uh, from, from others. So it really, it really comes down to the chain of what is material information and whether it has been disclosed publicly or not. Interesting. I mean, I think the, the concepts largely align with what we have here in the U.S. I think if we really, really dug into it, there are probably some nuances in thinking. Um, but this sort of idea that that a breach of trust could lead to an insider trading charge is similar to, to how we think about it here in the U.S. Um, but just it's interesting, of course, to see how, uh, how it's treated differently, um, both here and, and in Canada. It is interesting because in the U.S., where it's largely been sort of articulated or clarified in case law, there's a, a number of cases, as I understand it, that has analyzed the purposes of prohibiting insider trading misdeeds, you know, whether it's because someone has misused their position of a fiduciary or someone who is, has, has the confidence of the company or somebody who gets an unfair advantage you don't have that because of the statutory basis. As I said, it's, it's I guess, baked into the concept once you cross the threshold of having what's seen as material non-public information and you trade with it, then you don't have to go through the analysis about whether or not this is the type of thing that should be pursued as a matter of policy that's baked into the, 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 the statute. And that's that's a significant difference. Yeah, it, it certainly is. It's sort of a per se violation, which we don't have. We we twist ourselves up into pretzels trying to figure out if other elements are satisfied with respect. Sure, you to make our, our system sound worse when you say that. I, I mean, well, in this respect, I think it it is. But I mean, that's <laughs> that's one person's view. <laughs> you, you just you just spent the first part of this podcast trashing Canada. I mean, I <laughs> I have to jump in a little bit. <laughs> Try to present both sides fairly here, Larry. Thanks for, oh, for picking up the slack for us. Larry, I think they said the trashing was going to come at the end. So fasten your teeth up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Compliment sandwich. Uh, okay. Well, then I, I'm really hesitant to get into the next topic, but here we go. Uh, so <laughs> another area where there are uh, some differences between the, the U.S. approach and the approach in Canada and, and frankly, some uh, some pretty stark differences among the provinces, as I understand it, is is whistleblowing. Uh, so, you know, Larry, as you know, in the U.S., our system, at least in terms of SEC whistleblowing, is really based on creating incentives to get people with credible information about potential violations of the securities laws to step forward and say, you know, I, I know or have reason to believe that this thing happen. And, you know, if they're right, and if they provide helpful information, we will give them an award, um, which has been referred to sometimes as a, a bounty payment. And that model has been extraordinarily successful. I think in about 10 years, there have been more than uh, I think we've paid out something like $730 million in whistleblower awards to more than 100 individuals, many of them coming from abroad. I believe uh, the U.S. has received tips from 130 countries and leading the way, I, I should add, are whistleblowers from Canada. 
in Canada, they, they seem to take a different approach in some of the provinces. Um, I believe some provinces just say it's absolutely inappropriate to pay a whistleblower an award in any circumstances. In others, I think it may be allowed in, in very limited circumstances. But why don't you sort of lay out the differences as you see them, um, either between Canada and the US or even among the provinces? I, I think you're right in terms of the differences. I think Ontario is the one that also has a bounty, and I think it's the only jurisdiction that has a bounty like the SECs. Although, you know, in a classic Canadian way, we look at the SEC approach and see the extraordinary high numbers. And we sort of shudder because that's just what Canadians do. So there are certain <laughs> caps and and there are certain limitations. And part of that also in terms of a balance will factor in how much a person can can get rich from from this kind of activity. But, you know, it, we're, we're talking about millions of dollars and we're talking about a certain percentage of the ultimate fine in Canada, our securities regulators the imposition of fines are of themselves much lower than you see in the uh, in the U.S., although we have for sure been seeing the Canadian securities regulators trying to catch up in recent years. But there is that kind of balance and the classic, you know, compromise between, you know, giving too much money out to make it into a, a business, but creating that kind of financial incentive in, in Ontario. But Ontario is the only one that has that um, that bounty. There are pr- various protections, whistleblower protections, whistleblower programs in many of the other jurisdictions, Quebec, uh, Alberta, I think BC, where there are protections provided under the law against uh retribution for whistleblowing. In, in fact, it, one of the crucial areas of the whistleblower programs is that it is a violation of securities law to retaliate against a, a whistleblower, which can have a lot more impact on a business for, you know, for a determination of, of violating securities law uh, then certainly a, a, a risk slap that they have violated, you know, labor laws. From the investigative perspective in the world of, of fraud examiners and, and fraud investigators, a significant portion of uh, frauds become known through whistleblower tips. Much like the other things that we've discussed, it really the whistleblower protections and the, the whether or not to incentivize or to... Um, you know, to to reward. Um, that's just another area that potentially needs to be assessed in terms of reform. You know, to to combat corruption and and insider trading for sure, but all all types of white collar crime. Thinking back, Kurt, to when Dodd Frank came came about in in 2010 here in the states, that was the biggest friction against kind of the whistleblower programs was you're basically paying people to tattle and there's going to be a lot of false reports. But I think as that's played out, um, we've seen, you know, and we've had a couple of episodes on whistleblowing on the podcast here, uh, you know, we've seen generally, you know, the legal and regulatory environment accept and, and almost uh, applaud the whistleblower programs that they've operated. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that we've seen over time and in different jurisdictions that having in place some form of incentive structure leads to more and better tips. But, you know, to to Larry's point, or perhaps to the OSC's point, may, maybe we're not quite getting the balance right 
here in the US. And so it's interesting to see how regulators in other parts of the world are thinking about it. There you go, Larry and Steph. You just had Kurt say the U.S. might not be getting the balance right, so yeah. we're getting those cheap shots back on ourselves. I'm keeping it. I'm keeping count. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but I, I should say I, I fully agree that whistleblower programs and protections is really a game changer. And again, you know, I go back to um, the policy side of things and the approaches that we all have to advising clients, it also creates an incentive inside the organization to have an effective internal system of gathering information, receiving uh, whistleblower complaints internally, and demonstrating, again, you know, to Stephanie's point, tone at the top, that this is an environment, this is an organization that takes complaints seriously, aggressively investigates them, uh, takes action, remedial action, and is seen to be able to self-police. In that environment, I think, you know, there should be an incentive to really make sure that individuals who have a complaint take it within their internal systems rather than running off to the regulator, not because you want to be afraid of the, the regulator, but, you know, so you, you probably should be, but also just because it creates a better environment of compliance within the organization and better governance. I completely agree with that. And I know, Chris, <laughs> we both have had similar experiences and, and similar uh, stories where clients have said um, that they think they have a you know a pretty a pretty good outfit, um, pretty clean operations because they're not getting a lot of uh, internal complaints. <laughs> That's <laughs> which- right. Which usually seems to be the opposite <laughs> of what's actually going on. But um, no, yeah. I, I agree. Internal reporting, figuring out how, and it's not the same for every organization, but figuring out how to appropriately encourage or incentivize people to raise their hand internally is, is a tough question, but it's critically important. Kurt, I want to get to the 800-pound gorilla on the podcast episode today. The differences between Canadian and U.S. accounting, of course. (laughs) I don't know how we went this long without talking about accounting, Kurt. Oh, I think we're just about out of time, Chris. Oh, Uh, yes, there it is. Thank you for listening to this episode. So as you guys know, uh, from the accounting side, the U.S. uh, gap, the generally accepted accounting principles here in in the United States are are unique, especially as they're viewed throughout the world. Uh, Canada operates under a system of the International Financial Reporting Standards, or IFRS. Kurt, I've done my best to give you a brief education in that over the past 30 plus episodes. Uh, But I wanted to, (laughs) we'll see how you do on the test at the end. Um, Especially with how interlinked our two economies are, you know, just with with the border between us. You know, I think it's an interesting area to touch on a bit. So, uh, you know, I want to hear, Stephanie, from from your perspective up in Toronto, how IFRS and U.S. GAAP uh, are seen from from your side of the border uh, in terms of accounting standards and, and how they're implemented interesting because, you know, almost analogous to the to the earlier conversations we're having about the need to have a uh, national regulatory system, you know, where you need to have sort of a cohesive and, and unified approach to things. Um, you know, interestingly enough, you know, you have the, uh, the IFRS, the International Financial Reporting Standards, as their objective is to have you know financial statements be consistent and and you know transparent but but comparable really around the world as the world's shrinking and there's so much cross border uh, business going on um, and interestingly enough the the two countries that probably have the most to do with each other in terms of of uh, 
setting up you know, businesses and investing are not actually using the, uh, the same reporting standards. Um, not, not always, but, you know, not, not all the time. As you had mentioned, where Canadian GAAP really is um, in line with the IFRS standards, the U.S. GAAP is, is not. However, for companies that are filing in the U.S., they, they do have the option, um, for Canadian companies that are filing in the U.S., they do have the option to, to apply for uh, U.S. GAAP. And that option is usually exercised by Canadian companies that you know, frequently conduct international transactions or, or want to uh, attract investors. The truth is that there is plenty of, of common ground between the accounting standards in Canada and in the U.S., some of the key differences would be um, things like the IFRS is not as strict on defining revenue and allows companies to um, report revenue sooner. So consequently, you'll have a balance sheet under the system that might, might show a higher stream of revenue than it would if they were following U.S. GAAP. Um, another example is on the expense side, where a company spending money on development or investment for the future, it doesn't necessarily have to be reported as an expense. It can be capitalized under IFRS. There's, you know, differences in the way inventory is accounted for, you know, high level. There are two ways to keep track of inventory. There's FIFO and LIFO, uh, first and first out and last and first out, basically meaning that, you know, first and first out, the most recent inventory is left unsold um, until the older inventory is sold. And in LIFO, the most recent inventory is the first to be sold. So IFRS prohibits LIFO, while um, in the U U.S. standards, you can uh, use either one. There are some slight differences in the uh, standards for auditor reporting, and there are some differences on matters relating to um, reporting assets and liabilities. And I know there's whole practices at firms like ours and others that that really focus on kind of that cross-border, uh, both accounting and, and how those things are enforced as well. So uh, for those of you interested in more accounting uh, topics, you know, we've done an episode or two on that in the past of the podcast. Maybe, Stephanie, you and I will break off and do something uh, accounting focused between Canada and the U.S. While, while Kurt and Larry talk about their high-minded legal issues. Over a couple of Tim Hortons. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> I love it. So we've covered a lot of ground and there are some other issues, of course, we could talk about where there may be some distinctions between uh, the way the provinces approach securities regulation and how we think about it here in the U.S. Uh, what we want to do is close with a little bit more of a, of a high level conversation. And it's something that we were actually talking about when we were preparing for this episode. And it's thinking about how we should treat or how we will have to come to treat emerging issues, things like, you know, market manipulation and the sort of Reddit, Wall Street bets trading and YOLO trading, new trading platforms and applications, cryptocurrencies and other digital assets and, and blockchain. Some of these uh, new technologies, new services that are entering the market. And we're sort of trying to figure out what to do do with them from a securities regulatory standpoint. And, and sometimes what we find is that these new things don't necessarily fit in the framework that exists. Uh, Larry, I know it's something that you've thought about. We're kind of staying high level here, but what do you think about some of these emerging issues and how we're, we're trying to, to squeeze them into our securities regulatory framework? It's a great question. And it's a great framing, but it really does reflect what 
what and how um, uh, you know securities regulation should be and and any and evolve to. I mean, one of the major issues that that we look at up here in terms of um, and and around the world is is even framing what securities regulators do or traditionally do in a much broader context. The meltdown of uh, uh, 2007, 2008, 2009 really highlighted the fact that, you know, what traditionally has been seen as securities regulation is much broader and that the role of capital markets in the broader economy has to be taken into consideration uh, when framing prohibitions and requirements because you have to, you know, going back to first principles, you're trying to incentivize behavior, acceptable behavior, and disincentivize uh, poor behavior. And it doesn't, as you say, fit neatly often within the framework of securities uh, regulation. Cryptocurrency is an example of that. The derivatives uh, boxes that we're trying to be dealt with in in the meltdown era also uh, was part of that. The model we came up with and was found to be unconstitutional in the in the federal reform initiative was we were calling the uh, securities regulator that we were trying to encourage development a capital markets regulatory authority, which which tried to avoid needing to categorize what the issue was as a securities issue and just broaden it into something within the capital markets. We regulators, you know, even though that may be a sort of a just a name, it should reflect the fact that regulators have to approach these things in a very open new way of looking at it that will require a greater connection, a greater understanding with what's going on in the markets and engaging market participants because they know a heck of a lot more than the securities regulation r- regulators about what's happening on the ground. And therefore, they should be part of framing the issue and therefore helping to create the regulations going forward. You've sold me, Larry. Um, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> Sometimes we need to be a little bit more flexible. Sometimes I think we need to be a little bit less uh, myopic, but it's something we're certainly going to contend with as as we continue to see the capital markets evolve. And I think, Kurt, to that end, it's it's arms race may not be the right uh, term, but maybe a consistent evolution where it can be uneven from the products and, and schemes and, and activity that's happening in the market versus the ways that we can regulate them. And especially, Stephanie, as you know, the ways that we can investigate some of those issues. You know, you use the phrase, uh, there's old tools, but we need some new techniques. Talk to us a bit about how you think about investigations in this kind of evolving world. It really is, is evolving. Um, I think, you know, there have been tremendous um, leaps you know, using data analytics and um, and other tools for for fraud examiners that are um, extremely effective. Um, I mean, the, the bottom line is that you know we're living in a world now where technological innovations are are happening you know so fast, and it's almost like you gotta you gotta keep up with the criminals. <laughs> you know, the the fraudsters are are very innovative, and they've developed a wide range of schemes to you know to commit and hide fraud. On top of the the uh, technological innovations, you also have the impact of social media. But with all of these uh, opportunities for for fraudsters to increase their 
opportunities to commit fraud. And there's also, you know, the, the available data also helps those investigating the fraud, you know, to come up with innovative techniques. There's data that's being generated from from fraudulent acts helps us to create automatic pattern recognition methods. And, and that, that can be used to, to read data and to learn, you know, the, the features of a scam that's about to happen without the fraudster even knowing that we are, are on to those features. This world, you know, is, is changing literally faster than I think it has ever changed in any other generation. Innovations that are happening in the you know dark worlds uh, of fraudsters, those those same um, opportunities are allowing innovations to happen in, in the tools that we use to to catch them. It's an excellent point. These issues do not know any borders, and so the information, whether it's within a country or whether it's across different different countries, it it really does. Innovation requires information, empirical data that you're talking about, tools, experiences, and evidence of what's happening on the ground to be shared across uh, the various platforms, across countries, so that you know there's a consistency of approach and, and, and a consistent understanding of what the problem is so that it can be pursued in a coordinated way. Cue the music. Uh, it's time for our lightning round of questions we've got for our guests today. That's right. This is your your chance to to maybe hit back at uh, at the Americans here if you feel like we've been un, unfair so far. But uh, Chris, let's yeah, get it was, going. Round I was going to say these are questions of preference. Uh, just a gut check answer for both of you. Although they're your opinion, uh, there is a right and wrong answer to each. <laughs> Question one. We'll start with you, Stephanie. Dunkin' Donuts or Tim Hortons? Dunkin' Donuts. Oh! I know. Larry, what do you think? I'm a little nervous that my American... My goodness. Yeah. Larry's uh, thinking about if Stephanie's really a Canadian citizen. I know. I feel like this this round of questioning is not going to be good for me. All right, Kurt. What's up in round two? All right, here we go. I know this one is really going to tug at your heartstrings, Mm. Chris. Um, Larry, let's start with you. Um, Buffalo Bills or Toronto Bills? Well, it, it is. There is no question. Buffalo Bills. Amen. Oh man, Stephanie, do you have a view? I mean, come on, come well, on, just get, get Chris here. Me, but but what I will say is that if that question would have been hockey related, I one hundred percent would have been a Canadian fan. Amen. <laughs> All right, round three. We're going to be talking about the always sexy topic of weather related infrastructure. <laughs> Stephanie, do you think that the path? Is a better design system or the Dallas Pedestrian Network, both of which are tunnels to avoid, yet you're going with PATH? The PATH is unbelievable. That's I've awesome. never seen anything like it. Larry, do you have any experience with uh, Dallas uh, underground malls? I, I I have not, but I am right now, I, I have been lost in the PATH for the past three years. I've, <laughs> oh, I've God. So, so I'm there right now. I'm doing Yeah, this you're broadcast. currently recording from a closet in some <laughs> PATH hallway. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have to say, I didn't fully appreciate the path until I was in Toronto in January once, and it was like minus 20, and I got to the end of the path and had to come back up, and it was awful. Uh, so, I, you know, I'll brave the hot streets of Dallas any day. I appreciate the path. Uh, all right, here we go. Question question number four. Stephanie, we'll start with you. 
Pearson Airport or the Billy Bishop City Airport? Hmm. That really depends on the specific situation at hand. You want to get in and out quickly, Billy Bishop, but you want to have, you know, your Starbucks and your uh, nice choice of food to eat, Pearson. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, what do you think? Um, I, I will agree with my Tim Horton bashing friend. <laughs> oh, I love it. You can get a good Our, cup of Dunkin' at Pearson, right? That's maybe the- that's true. <laughs> All right, Larry, starting with you, what do you think the best Toronto sports team is? The Leaves, the Jays, the Raptors, Toronto FC, or the ever-famous Argonauts? There's no question. The Raptors, the Raptors rule. Mm-hmm. We the North, I think, is the phrase that was tossed around a couple years back. (laughs) Stephanie, are you in agreement? Uh, I know you referenced hockey earlier. You know what? As much as hockey is uh, a key element of our our family uh, weekends and weeks, I'm going to have to agree with Larry. The Raptors have brought us nothing but pride. Amen. Wow. Okay. I mean, this this question originally was going to be Joe Carter or Kawhi Leonard, but I guess we might have had the same <laughs> the same, same answer. answer yeah. <laughs> okay. The very, I'm, the very fact that you have to pull out Joe Carter is is tells you oh, about. Yeah, come on, it's iconic. Running, right? It's iconic, right? <laughs> all right. Here we go. La- last one, and uh, apparently, I'm just thinking about travel. Maybe it's all the lockdown. I don't know. But <laughs> uh, all right, weekend getaway: uh, NYC or Montreal? Uh, Larry, how about you? What do you think? There, there's no better getaway than than New York City. A hundred percent. That's excellent. Oh, all right, we got, I think we I got think, we got one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Again, I won't tell you what the right and wrong answers were, but you guys definitely hit on some of both. So, uh, I think we we we've, we're Canadians. We like to stay neutral. That's right. A lot of equivocations there. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Stephanie Greenwald of RSM and Larry Ritchie of Osler. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. 
Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.